Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 53. We won't go there yet, but I want you to have your, your, your place. Um, just real quick, Merry Christmas, everybody. And I just, I got to plug something just because I think it's extremely special. I know Catherine's probably going to hate me for this, but uh, Catherine Davis recorded that piano piece at home, which was beautiful in and of itself. And then she played the organ on top of the piano piece that they were feeding from the, uh, the AV booth. I think it was excellent. Two pieces blending like that. Thank you, Catherine. But, but we were all blessed by that music. Karen, do you realize that was for you, right? All right, we love you. We love you. That was a beautiful gift. Thank you, Catherine, for that. Um, this baby's life, it's Christmas Eve. I think the subject matter is uh, right on point this morning. Uh, when your wife is pregnant, uh, the mother, <laughs> i, I got to clarify in this day and age, and you, the father, you think quite a bit about that unborn child. We've all done this. We think quite a bit about our unborn child. And then when they enter this world, when you get to hold your child, <laughs> when you get to hold your baby and you stare into that little innocent face, you ask questions such as these, questions like this, what is he or she going to look like? I'm just going to use he for the purpose of this message. What is he going to look like? What is he going to be like? What things will he face in this life? I wonder what he is going to accomplish. What will he do? What will he become? Come on, parents. We've often wondered what our children are going to turn out like. Even when they're in the womb, we ask questions like this. I'm sure these are just some of those that we ask when our baby's on the way or we get to hold he or she for that very first time. But there were probably questions another young mother considered during her pregnancy. Like all mothers, Mary carried her child for nine months and I'm sure she thought quite a bit about her unborn son. Her unborn son. She and Joseph had already experienced supernatural occurrences. Can you imagine? Experiencing supernatural occurrences. I mean, Mary and her husband were visited by and spoken to by angels. Angels. It was obvious that this baby was important. And it's obvious that God was involved. I'm sure she thought about the same questions as the rest of us parents think. The only thing is, Mary was a virgin. Mary was a virgin. What was conceived in her was from the Holy Spirit. So this was a different kind of pregnancy altogether. It was a one-of-a-kind pregnancy for a one-of-a-kind child. And you know, Mary had every right, every right to wonder about the greatness of her child. Let me read something to you. In Luke 1, verses 30 through 33, it says this, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great 
and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. There's a song, you know it, Mary Did You Know? It's called Mary Did You Know? And it speaks to the greatness and great wonders of this baby's life. Mary Did You Know? Yes, Mary knew. I don't get the song completely because here's the deal. I believe Mary knew quite a bit about the son that she carried, quite a bit. And she would give birth to this child in Bethlehem, as we know, prophecy fulfilled. You know, Mary could have been very familiar with the text that we're going to read today in Isaiah. She could have been. Now listen, while Isaiah was written about 700 years before the birth of Jesus, I can't stand behind the pulpit and tell you for certain that Mary knew this text, because I don't know. But what I can tell you is that it was available. It would have been taught. It would have been read, okay? You know, back then, people memorized Scripture a little differently than we do. And I know that sounds funny, but let me, let, let me explain. Scripture to them was not so ready available. We have it at our fingertips. Paper, digitally, we have the Bible everywhere. And of course, we can memorize Scripture. I get that. But let me talk about phone numbers for a second. Do you remember, guys, back in the day before social media and being online, uh, if you walked up to a pretty girl and you wanted to communicate with her, you better learn those seven digits. Do you remember those days? These young kids were like, what? What's seven digits? What I'm getting at is you had to memorize phone numbers. And I used to know hundreds of phone numbers. I could just do them like that. Because if I wanted to talk to that pretty girl, I had to call that phone number. So you didn't forget. A lot of times we wrote it on our arms and our hands. But back then, we had to use our memory to memorize phone numbers. You guys know what I'm talking about. We probably still, I can still remember my grandmother's phone number, 752436. See, we remember these things because we had to memorize them. But as social media took place and as cell phones came in, guess what? I could not, I could, I can barely call my wife. I don't know your phone number. I know your name and my phone. Text me your number. That's what we do, right? Text me your number. And I'll just add you to my contacts. I got to remember your face and your name, but I don't need to remember your number. I could not call one person in here, okay? Because we don't have to do that anymore. But do you see how that slipped? We don't do phone numbers anymore. And what I'm getting at back then is when they heard Scripture, it stuck. The Jewish people held on to this information. So what I'm getting at is Mary and Joseph both could have known this prophecy very, very well. And this prophecy, of course, is about this baby's life. And it's amazing. Everybody look at Isaiah 53. Let's look at the first two verses. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Who will believe our report? This prophet, the author here, speaking, the remnant of believing Jews, they're going to grieve over the fact that so few people will believe their message about the Savior, about the servant, the suffering servant. So few people will believe. And you know what else? They won't even acknowledge that this message is coming from God. That's sad. 
They won't even believe it. And his strength. The Bible says the arm of the Lord, that's the power of God in action. And we see that revealed in this suffering servant. This young plant growing up out of dry ground. This is an appropriate image of a suffering servant. It is withered, right, from an, from an area that, 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 that's an arid area where you wouldn't expect a plant such as this to grow. Well, here he is. Here he is. This plant has no form or majesty. This young plant has no beauty. Listen, we are not saying that Jesus was ugly or unattractive. We're not saying that. What we're saying is this, there was no physical reason to desire him or to look at his appearance and see a powerful king or a charismatic deliverer. That's not what he was bringing to the table appearance-wise. He was not a royal. He was obscure. He was outwardly unimpressive to people. And you know what? There are some scholars who believe that this text in Isaiah 53 represents the Jewish nation. Of course, most of these scholars are Jewish. But as you'll see in this text, no, this, this message conveys the suffering of one. What we're talking about today is this baby's life. We're talking about the life of Jesus. Now, let's go back to Mary in a sec. We're, we're going to read some verses here in a second, and, and I want to go back to Mary, because can you imagine a person handing a note to Mary that very first Christmas night as she held her child, and the note read something like this, hey, here Mary, um, this will describe your baby's life. This is, this is going to show you and tell you what your baby's life is going to be like. Let's look at these verses here. Verses 3 and 4, Isaiah 53, is where we're planning ourselves today. Here's the note. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Can you imagine receiving a note like that describing your child's life? Here's what it'd be like for us. I'm going to pretend like, you know, we're our child's in school. Here's what it'd be like for us. Hey, I know you love your child, but here is what's going to happen um, to him as he is going to school. Here's what's going to happen to him at school. He's going to be despised, not only by other students, by teachers and faculty as well, mistreated. He's going to constantly be rejected socially, in sports, extracurricular activities, in the classroom. He will know sorrow, and he will be very familiar with grief on a daily basis. No one will give him any serious attention. He will be dismissed. People will want to hide their faces from him as they pass him in the hall. He will be disrespected at every turn, and people will consider him to be afflicted, consider him to be beaten down. He will feel great pain, and he will suffer greatly at the hands of others. Now, that's your child I'm talking about, Right? What parent in here today would not go in and pull their child out of that school immediately? Am I right? We'd snatch them up quickly. Let me ask, what parent wouldn't want to rise up in arms, right, and deal with these people ever so severely? Think about your baby being treated like this, right? We're not going to have it. 
So let's look at what's in store for Mary's baby. What is in store? Despised, rejected, knowing sorrow, knowing grief, knowing pain, disrespect, stricken. He'll be punishable, just automatically punishable, afflicted. These are horrible words to tell a mother in describing her child's life. But this is what Isaiah is doing. This is the mother's nightmare, by the way, isn't it? Seriously, if this is what you were hearing, isn't this a mother's nightmare? I mean, this would be horrible to hear. See, this is by no means encouraging. It's not an encouraging description of Jesus' life because he wasn't born into a royal family. He wasn't surrounded by splendor. Uh, There was no silver spoon. There was no palace. He was born into humble circumstances. He didn't look like a king, and no one was following him because of his appearance. He was not accepted. Rather, he was disliked, disrespected both in person and message. Was there acceptance of who he was what he did and what he said. Sometimes, yeah. Not all people treated him like this. But a lot thought that this guy's either a lunatic or they just dismissed him all together. He's not worth bothering. Don't bother with him. It's just not worth it. That is some of the mindset. So most thought that when he died on the cross that God was just getting this guy out of the way, gets this troublemaker out of the way, Right? Do you know what it feels to be disliked, talking to you? Do you know what it feels like to be disrespected or rejected? A lot of you may have experienced one of those. A lot of you may have experienced all three. Isn't it a horrible thing to be rejected by another person? Isn't it a horrible thing to be disliked by another person, right? and to be disrespected. We all have felt disrespect at one time or another. It's a horrible, horrible feeling. But guess what? Today, most of the world still feels this way about him. I don't want to hear anything about Jesus, and I don't want to hear anything he has to say, which is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking because of these next two verses. Imagine now how people would have treated Jesus in our time. Because we know how they treated him in his time. And they still dislike him, they still reject him, they still disrespect him. But let's look at these new two, uh, next two verses. The heart of our scripture, Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed, and we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned all, all, right? Everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This baby was born to take upon himself the consequences of people's sins. Now, the griefs, the sorrows, All that sin brings to fallen humanity, though he would not sin himself, though he would not sin himself, he would bear them all. It was this baby who would grow up to be afflicted. He would grow up to be smitten by God, and it is all our fault. 
I don't know if you think of it like this. This is our fault, our transgressions, our iniquities. Jesus was severely punished for the sins of mankind. That is you and that is me. Mary knew her son well. She didn't travel with him all throughout his ministry, but she was out a part of a lot of it. And I'm going to tell you right now, Mary was there at the foot of the cross when she watched her child give up his life. When Jesus took on the sins of the world and gave up his life for hours. Now, I want you to picture walking up to Mary in that scene. Just picture it. She's at the foot of the cross having seen her son just die. What would you say? Sorry about your kid. It's too bad. You know, I feel for you. You know, I'm tempting to put this into our human perspective here. Wouldn't we all fall onto our knees in tears crying out to her, this is my fault. I am so sorry because this is my fault. I mean, what about if we were standing before God? If we were standing before God himself, wouldn't we just hit the floor face first crying out to him, this is my fault? Because the Bible tells us it is. You know, setting aside non-believers for a second, because that's easy. It's unfortunate that there are Christians today, professing Christians, who don't hold themselves responsible for sin. They don't hold themselves accountable for sin. They're just dismissing altogether what this mother endured as she watched her child die. And let's face it, parents, don't we all see our children, no matter how old, as babies? I know my kids hate hearing this. But don't we all see our children as babies? We do. They're our kids. We can remember the birth. We can remember those first years, right? We don't lose sight of that. And new parents, when you have your baby, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They can be 18. They can be 28. They can be 38. You're always going to see them as your babies. It's no different for Mary. But you know what's interesting? The Bible tells us like sheep, like sheep. You and I, dumb and helpless, I'm sorry for calling you dumb, but human beings are dumb and helpless, just like sheep. We all contributed to his suffering. The Bible says all of us like sheep, every one of us has turned away. We have to take that seriously. We turned away, yet he was crushed, yet he was pierced. And we were healed? That seems weird. That seems a little odd how that worked out. We were healed. The Lord had laid on him the iniquity of, of us all. It was our fault, but we were the ones who were healed. Let's look at these next two verses. Isaiah 53, 7 and 9. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. 
And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Church, family. I said it, I'll say it again. We know that not all people treated Jesus in such a harsh manner. A lot believed, a lot followed him. But just like we know that he did not always also, uh, uh, not always was treated like this, we also have to realize he did not always remain, remain silent before his accusers. But I'll tell you, in this text, these verses, they do remind me of Jesus when he was silent before the chief priest as they made accusations against him. That illegal trial, that early morning illegal trial where they made those accusations. And when he spoke very few words to Pilate to even refute the accusations that they were charging him with. 1 Peter 2.23 says this, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I could not have done what Jesus did. I don't think you could have either. So if you put me in a corner and you've threatened or you're acting out verbally and physically, you're attacking me, I will do my best to take as much as I can until I can't take any more. And then I am coming out of that corner much harder than you ever came at me in the first place. Isn't that the human way? Aren't we all like that? You're like that. Come on. It's not just me. If someone threatened you, put you in a corner, you've taken all you can. Don't you come out swinging? That's who we are. Of course, we're going to defend ourselves. We're going to justify our actions. Our anger is going to take precedence. We are going to act out. Jesus could have called on thousands upon thousands of angels for help at any time. And I'll say it again. I've said this before. I'll say it again. Of course, he would only need one. Folks, to defeat us, he would only need one angel. But he could have called on them. What happened? He went willingly. He went submissively like a lamb to the slaughter. The lamb is dumb. They don't know what's happening. They're quiet as they approach the slaughterhouse, folks. They intended on burying him, by the way, in a mass grave. They were going to throw him in a pit with common criminals. A lot of people don't know that. But although he died with the wicked, because he died in between thieves, his burial was in a tomb of a rich man named Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. Now, this is interesting. I love when Bible skeptics and critics want to take parts of the Bible and say, it can't be right, you can't validate this. But they won't look at texts like this. A 700-year prophecy about who he'll die with and where he'll be buried? And it came to fulfillment? I mean, he fulfilled prophecy. The thieves he died with, the rich man's tomb. Why don't they talk about that? Why don't they talk about that? I don't get it. Prophecy fulfilled, folks. This was talked about 700 years prior. This servant was innocent indeed. Jesus was innocent indeed. He didn't commit violence. He was also innocent in word. No deceit came out of his mouth. He was sinless. He was innocent, folks. A person of moral purity. Wrongly condemned. Wrongly condemned. So why so much restraint? I ask myself that. Could you have done what Jesus did, though? Wouldn't we have all fought back? 
Wouldn't we have all got angry enough to say something or even strike back? He could, I mean, he could have at any time, but he exercised so much restraint. It's because Jesus was acting accordingly with the will of God. That took precedent over him trying to fight back, right, to seek vengeance. He was acting accordingly with the will of God. And in this willingness, guess what happened? He was fulfilling prophecy. The book of Isaiah, this prophecy in particular, was being fulfilled in this baby's life as it talked about and predicted the things that would happen in this baby's life. Look at Isaiah. Let's look at our last verses here. Isaiah 53, 10 and 12, through 12, excuse me. Talking about how he could exercise so much restraint. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide with him, or excuse me, divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Oh my goodness, it was God's will that Jesus would be crushed. This is why you could see the restraint in the life of Jesus. This is why you can see him acting accordingly to God's will because it was God's will for his life to be crushed. That he would suffer grief. That his soul would make an offering for guilt. You know there is a guilt offering in Scripture, absolutely. You know, a guilt offering was offered uh, to atone for sin. To atone for for sin. It wasn't Jesus' life that satisfied the wrath of God, folks. It was his life which culminated in his death. And that, my friends, was the sacrifice for our sins that satisfied God. He wasn't satisfied with the life of Jesus. It was the culmination that led to the death that was the ultimate sacrifice. That satisfied God. And that was what we call the offering. That was the offering. Now this reality of his resurrection, which we all know is true, means that he will see his offspring children of God, those who believe him, those who have placed their faith in him. He's going to see them, and he will live forever as Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's who he will always be. And he will prosper and be blessed because of his obedience to the will of God. He was obedient to God's plan. We see that in Scripture. Prophecy fulfilled. His substitutionary work was completed I love that word, his substitutionary work. John 19.30 says this, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave. See that word? And gave up his spirit. Folks, Jesus, he can justify. 
Jesus can declare righteous those who believe in him. And many, many people would be counted and will be counted as righteous. They will be counted as righteous because he died, they would live. Because he died, they will live. And this is why Jesus is exalted. People often ask me, why are y'all so crazy about Jesus? Why are you a Jesus freak? Why do you lift up Jesus? We exalt and lift up Jesus because he was the offering. He died so that I could live. Now, they're not going to understand that yet, but Christian believers, we understand it. And that's why we embrace the Christmas season so much, and we embrace this baby's life. This is why Jesus exalted. He was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered with them. God himself considered a sinner. That's hard to say that Jesus Christ was considered a sinner because he bore the sins of everyone. That's why the Bible puts it like that. He bore the sins. And what does he still do? He intercedes for the very sinners that he saved. Man, I need intercession I don't know about you, but I know Jesus works overtime interceding for me. Isn't that miraculous what he does for us? Not only does he save your life, he continues to protect that life and intercede for you. Praise God. His death satisfied God's righteous demands for judgment. He satisfied God's righteous demands for judgments against sin, thus opening the way for everyone to come to God. See, people don't understand Christmas. This opened the way for everyone to come to God in faith for salvation from sin. Now, this may all sound harsh. It may seem harsh to you. But this story is actually gracious. I know this has been hard to hear. And I'm trying to get you to pretend to put yourself in Mary's place as if you were receiving a note describing your child's life. It's hard to hear. But this whole story, this whole prophecy is gracious. Grace and love abound in the story of this baby's life. Because, see, we have divine purpose here. We have a willing and submissive servant here. We have a sacrificial death here. And we have our new life. All of this, divine purpose, the willing and submissive servant, the sacrificial death is for our new life. Church family, we don't worship the baby Jesus. We don't worship teenage Jesus. We worship Jesus Christ, the Son of God, entirely. That's who we worship because he paid it all, right? He paid the ransom. Now, it's important to understand something. The idea of ransom, uh, I don't want it to be construed to mean that it's, in Jesus' death, God paid a ransom to the devil who enslaves men. Not at all. That would mean that the devil is more powerful than God, and he is not. He is created. He is not more powerful than God. That's not who the ransom was paid to. This means the devil's more powerful? Absolutely not. The thought is that in the death of his son, as man's substitute, remember the substitutionary? As man's substitute, God provided the grounds whereby he for, can, uh, can forgive sinners without violating his own holiness and righteousness. God is holy. 
God is righteous. God is just. He is not going to bend the rules to violate who He is and the attributes and His characteristics. He won't bend them. So we were doomed. There is nothing we could do. You want to talk about dumb and helpless sheep, here we are. There's nothing we could do. And He is not going to violate who He is because He is a just and holy God. So what does He do? He provided the grounds whereby He could forgive us. And that's the story of this baby's life. He won't violate His own holiness. Something had to be done. So since man cannot pay the price for his liberation, we can't pay for our freedom from sin's penalty and power. There's nothing we could do. God in the person of his son paid it for man. Jesus paid the ransom for all. It becomes effective for each person who through faith in God's son receives salvation as a gift of God's grace. I've got to say that again. This offering, by the way, this offering, and I'm going to go over it in a second, this offering is who He is and what He's done. This great offering. It's for each person, but it only becomes effective when that person, through faith in God's Son, receives salvation. And it is a gift of what? It's a gift of God's grace. This story is gracious, and it abounds in love and grace. The greatest gift you can ever receive is Jesus Christ. If Mary was here today, she would look at you and say, look at what my son endured to accomplish what he did for you. God the Father, he'd say, hey, open this book and look at what my son and I endured to accomplish what we did for you. Have you ever thought about that? Because I want you to think that way. Look at what my son endured to accomplish for what he did for you. This baby's life was all about the cross. I say it every Christmas, I do. I still haven't found a painting or any cool thing to put in my Christmas room to, to represent this. But when you look at the manger scene, you have to have the cross there. When you look at the cross, you have to have the manger scene there. Hand in hand, folks. This baby's life was all about the cross. The offering had been made. The offering had been made. Now, for some of you, the offering still stands. You haven't received this gift yet. Boy, I hope you do. Some of you, it still stands. But you know what? For those of us, the rest of us, who believe, who are believers, this offering, it's a what? What is the offering? The life of Jesus for ours. And who is the offering? It's Jesus Christ. So you can't separate the who and what in the offering. It's Jesus. This is who we are celebrating at Christmas. We are celebrating the offering he gave us and the offering that he is. That's what Christmas is. We're celebrating the greatest gift ever that we could ever receive, and that is Jesus Christ, because he is the offering. And Isaiah speaks to this as he foretells about this baby's life. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much. I thank you for this time together as a church family. 
I thank you for this Christmas season and what it means to us. Lord, I thank you that we could come today and celebrate the greatest offering and the greatest gift ever, which is your son, Jesus. He is everything. Just like the cantata song, he is the center of it all. He is the object of our faith. He is the sacrifice that saved our lives. He is the intercessor that continues to protect us. Jesus Christ is everything to us. And we celebrate the birth of this great king. Right now, we want to worship Jesus. And we want to thank you, Father. We want to thank you for sending your son. What you had to endure as your son took on the sins. I can't even imagine what that was like. All of us protect our babies and we love our babies and we don't want any harm to come to them. But you gave yours up so that we could live. That is grace. That is love. That is Christmas. Heavenly Father, let us celebrate Jesus Christ this season. Let us focus on him solely as we eat together, as we hug and greet and open presents and play, uh, decorate the trees. Lord, let us see Jesus in everything that we do this Christmas because it is all about him. We are grateful for your grace to us. We are grateful for your love for us because we know the offering. We know the offering that was made, and it was Jesus. Father God, we just thank you. We exalt the name of Jesus right now. We lift up the name of Jesus right now, and we just thank you for your son. We pray all this today in Jesus' name, amen.